There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to The Plays The Thing. My name is Tim McIntosh. I'm Heidi White. I'm Sarah Jane Bentley. You have joined us for the final episode of Romeo and Juliet. This is the traditional question and answer podcast in which we will answer your questions and we will also share our opinion about the recent national theater production directed by Simon Godwin that was hosted here by PBS starring Josh O'Connor and Jesse Buckley and Heidi and Sarah Jane. We have definite opinions about the national theater production don't we? We have thoughts. We have thoughts, thoughts and opinions. But I think I kind of want to wait for a little bit on that. Let's jump into the deep end with some of these questions from our listeners. I want to say, I feel like I'm kind of repetitive about this, but the level of question, the quality of questions, like with each successive podcast just gets a little bit more sophisticated. People seem to know more and more about Shakespeare. They have questions about the source material. And so, you know, the questions that came in, I was like, yep, everybody's just like stepping up their game. They're just Mm -hmm. really great questions. We're going to get to as many as we can, um, but there are a lot of them. So I'm going to try to be as thrifty as possible with today's podcast and just like jump right into them. Um, Sarah Jane, I'm going to come to you with the first question, which is about the source material. So um, this is from Christy Russell. Christy mentioned that one of the sources from R&J is Arthur Brooks' poem, which apparently was written as a moral tale. In his introduction to the poem, he very clearly has opinions that Romeo and Juliet were these kind of vile people who are morally disreputable on every front. So Christie's question, is the modern dislike of Romeo and Juliet bred, so to speak, into the story because this early source was so clearly intended to be a moral tale? Um, The question goes on. Many interpretations I've heard of R&J have, they're like two teenagers that rushed into an ill-advised marriage because of sudden infatuation. And Brooke, the author of the source material, seems to have intended that to be the case. If that was his original intent, 
is Shakespeare's version so different as to allow us a different interpretation? Sarah Jane, what do you think? Well, I must confess my thoughts are neither as developed nor as sophisticated as Christy Russell's. <laughs> right. She kind of she had a I, pretty, she was kind of like, got a little bit of an answer to her question in some ways in the question. That's the great thing about talking to you and to our listeners through this show, I think, is that we all learn things all the time. And so I did go and have a look at Brooke's poem again, and especially his, his preface. He says that the reason he writes the poem is to morally instruct the reader, as, as Christy tells us. And it is a rather damning sort of preface that he gives us. It's a tragical matter written to describe unto thee a couple of unfortunate lovers thralling themselves to unhonest desire, mm. neglecting the authority and advice of parents and friends. Mm. So um, the thing is, though, the preface is very didactic and moralistic. But when you read the poem, Brooke does have a slightly softer, kinder sort of attitude to his characters. And, and when he depicts them at length, you can see that it's gentler than he How interesting. initially says it will be. Yes. Yeah, so I wonder, you know, Shakespeare's not bound to the intentions mm -hmm. of Arthur Brooke and it's not the only source for the play either. There are many, there are at least six. But I think Christie has struck on something in that modern readers don't like being preached at mm. and perhaps dislike the fact that Romeo and Juliet's death can only triumph in its in its end, yeah. in death. But I'm I'm not fully aware that Romeo and Juliet is kind of unpopular for modern audiences. I wonder maybe if there's been a kind of shift there. I mean, certainly it was reproduced by the National quite recently. And um, I've always found it to be quite popular among the young people I teach. You know, you know in our first podcast, we talked about that some Shakespeare aficionados are a little bit snooty about Romeo and Juliet, but that's a small set, you know, like Shakespeare aficionados, like three of the eight of us are, you know, all on this podcast. So I don't know that it's fallen out of favor. <laughs> Maybe it's just a little bit less. Um, well, there's the, you know, there's that kind of dismissal of the the overly popular, right? You kind of feel like sometimes people can feel like Romeo and Juliet is like Shakespeare lights. That's the thing I read when I was a freshman. Yeah, and then there's yeah. like more serious Shakespeare. And I think one of our goals for the three of us has been to kind of debunk that and to say, no, this really is not only a popular story, but a literary masterpiece. Yeah. 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 You can kind of hear people, you know, who, who have that kind of affected indie look to them talking about, I really prefer Titus Andronicus. I prefer his early work. <laughs> with my you know, pour over coffee. <laughs> with my pour over coffee and my, yeah, like post bought Doc Martens you know, or something like that. <laughs> I don't even know what poured over coffee is. That's well, a, that's that's a credit to you. I know. That's how it really is. is. Okay. Hold on. Actually, it's a credit to you, but pour over coffee, Sarah Jane. Like, don't say it. Don't no, say it. It's so good. Pour over coffee is so good. Like if you actually, it takes two more minutes to prepare than say a French press. And I love French press. It is so much better. You if can you get, take like, the man out of Seattle. but That's <laughs> so true. But you can't take Seattle out the man. So that's right. true. Um, before we leave this question, we have a follow-up question from Jennifer Watts-Degani. 
also about the source material. Uh, Sarah Jane, are there any published editions of Shakespeare's sources? I enjoyed uh, reading Plutarch's Life of Coriolanus while writing, reading the play and would enjoy doing more deep diving for each play. I would like to recommend the Norton Critical Editions because they have a really good sort of filleted extracts from the key sources in the back and usually some critical essays as well. So, um, yeah, I'm really encouraged that readers want to read the sources. I think it's such a rewarding pursuit because you you really see Shakespeare's imagination at work, mm. his powers of invention, the things that he leaves out, what he adds, how his amazing poetic speeches um, elevate the characters beyond the plots that he sort of shamelessly steals. Right, right. And, um, and it kind of teaches us something about originality and how we've become so fixated with this in the modern era um, when actually it didn't really matter. Right. There's nothing original. Yeah. Yeah. Um, next question. Bethany Watkins Estep. She said, I've read Romeo and Juliet several times over the years and always, always loved it. I wish I could say that my love stems from the lofty, beautiful reasons discussed in the podcast. But her real reasons, says Bethany, is that she's just a hopeless romantic. Her question is, I've always wondered why when being forced to marry Paris in the conversation she has with her parents, where she refuses to marry him, why doesn't she confess she's already married to Romeo? He's already exiled. She's choosing to permanently separate her, uh, her from, the, from her family through a fake death, like an exile of another kind. So why not choose honesty and just be exiled together in the open? Is it fear of open war between the families? Wouldn't they have loved, uh, have held the sanctity of the marriage? Was she afraid of shaming the family she still loved? This is a great question. So Heidi, I wonder if we come to you on this one. Let's start with the first part of it. Why, when being forced to marry Paris in the conversation she has with her parents, where she already refuses to marry him, why doesn't she confess she's already married to Romeo? Yeah, I've actually wondered this before, too. And I think that it's a strategic reason. Uh, the text doesn't tell us. So we get are free to use our imaginations on this. And I've, I've always thought it's because she does indeed at this point believe that she can and will be reunited with Romeo and knows that if she was to confess that, then she would be locked up and kept from him. Uh, and she already has the plan at this point. And so I think she is refusing to tell them in order to... Uh, in order to protect her strategic plan to meet with Romeo, but being as honest and as straightforward and as strong as she can in her refusal at this point. That's my interpretation of it, yeah. but I'm very curious to hear others. Yeah. Sarah Jane? I would agree with that. I think she, she would risk never seeing Romeo again. We know about the short temper of her father. That's obviously an immediate concern is the wrath of her father. Might he kill her? Um, the other thing of course, is that if she confesses marriage, she's also going to have to confess that she's lost her virginity mm -hmm. because if the marriage is not consummated, then it can easily be annulled. Mm -hmm. And perhaps that's not something she's ready to do given that it was only moments earlier on the stage right. that this happened. Right. So I think there are many ways in which she's trapped into keeping this secret and it 
does seem like the wisest thing. Also, she's bought in a little bit, hasn't she, to the Fry's idea that there's going to be some epic reconciliation of both families as well as a result of the triumph of their love. And so everything's all to hope for at this point. Do you think, I mean, Sarah Jane, you kind of answered this in a way. Wouldn't the family, her family, have held to the sanctity of marriage? It, your answer is like, well, yeah, but they could have they potentially annulled it and still held to the sanctity of marriage and still gotten what they wanted, a marriage to Paris. She would have to confess that the marriage was consummated. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. This is all hypothetical, though. It's not what happened. Right. Yeah. Again, the text doesn't tell us. Well, right. and we also know, and maybe there's there's a possibility that that's part of the reason why we have the nurse telling her to marry Paris anyway. And then we know that this family isn't necessarily that tied to the idea of sanctity of marriage. So, yeah. I, I mean, the nurse point. is willing to stay a sell, essentially sell her to Paris, uh, even though she is still married to Romeo, just for purely pragmatic reasons. Is there another point we're missing as well? Because I wonder what the legal status would be of their marriage with the sentence mm-hmm. of exile. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that Romeo basically doesn't right. exist anymore? Maybe that's something we're missing. Right. Yeah, that's a great I, question. That's a, that is a great question. That's a great kind of historical question. And also, like, do you pull the historical answer from Shakespeare's time or from Romeo and Juliet's time? Who knows? Next question, Martha Burgundy from Okalala, Florida. By the way, I think I'm just going to start doing this. I'm just going to start making up like locations for people since we don't know. You know, like whenever (laughs) we bring people on like a radio, like, hey, this is Bob Smith. I'm from Tulsa, you know, whatever. I'm just going to start making up names. And apparently Martha Burgundy is from Okalala, Florida. Is that a real place? It is now. I don't know if it's a real place at all. I have no idea if it's a real place. Wow. You are, that was really good. Gibberish putting together what you just did right there. Martha asks, what beef did these families have with each other? What is so great an offense to cause this chasm? Murder, forbidden love, or not RSVPing in a timely manner. And I'm actually- That is annoying when people do that. It is annoying. And that's that's actually how the whole thing started. It's like a lot of people don't know that, but the whole war between the family is because the Capulets didn't get that RSVP in on time, which is- So let this be a lesson to all of you as we get up to graduation day, as parties are being hosted for our seniors- RSVP in a timely manner or you're going to cause a gang war (laughs) or your children will die. No. Do we know anything from the text about where this started? I've heard a great abundance of theories on this, none of which have firmly convinced me one way or the other. How about you, Sarah Jane? I've got some idea in my head that it's to do with a feud over land over property, but I can't remember where I got that idea from. I must've read it somewhere. I've ne- it's never really bothered me, I have to say. Right. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. think it's better if you just don't know because then you can't diminish it in your mind and say it's no big deal, right? To not know where it comes from means you have to take it seriously. And in order to understand and get to the heart of this play, you absolutely must take this feud seriously. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. The follow-up question from Katie Oots. I hope I got your last name right, Katie. Where's she from, Tim? She's from Shuntsville, Minnesota. <laughs> uh, Katie asks, same thing. Like, 
what caused it? How far back does it go? Does anyone really remember the origin? Is it simply a taught prejudice passed down from generation to generation? All questions that are not answered in the text specifically. Yet this lack of information leaves room for interpretation, which is actually one thing I really love about Shakespeare's play. They're pretty, uh, pretty much, they fit pretty much in any context. So Katie's question is kind of similar. I Every feud that's long lasting, that's lasted more than a generation, each side of the feud has an origin story about what the feud, where the feud started. And it begins with the other team doing something unjust. Always. Every feud starts that way. Every feud is irreconcilable because they have different origin stories. And those origin stories can't be merged into one because like the, the, the actual moment where the feud started is so far buried in history and, you know, in mythology and in what? what was that mythology it in becomes, mythology. It yes, becomes exactly. a formative epic myth right honestly like remember the crips and bloods in the 80s like yeah. i'm sure both sides had an origin it's <laughs> like no i don't i have no, no idea you know? what they are <laughs> they were la they were rival la they gangs they fought over right? pour over coffee they fought over so. they fought over pour over coffee <laughs> oh my gosh I opened it. I just really opened Pandora's box with this. Next question. Hang on. Did we answer that one? Well, I just kind of glazed it because I felt like the previous question kind of touched on it. So, but no, maybe we didn't answer it, Sarah I, I just wanted to say to Katie that um, it's the feud, it's not really lost in the love, in the love plot. It's more that um, it's, it's part of it, really, I think, is, is how, I would, how I would phrase it. And also, the older generations have completely forgotten about it. Capulet and Montague are incapable of fighting one another. Their, their wives mock them for how, how ridiculous it would be for them to have some kind of violent encounter over the feud. And it's, it's actually, as Heidi said, this kind of mm. mythological thing that the servants have picked up on. And when it's a hot day and they're looking for a fight, it's the perfect excuse. And it seems to be something that's, it's almost like something that the football fans would pick up on, but no one can actually yeah. remember the real reason that the management fell out. And, um, and so it's a really effective plot device, I think. Mm -hmm. Oh, no doubt. No doubt it is. Sally Webb Eilerson from Lower East Biloxi, Louisiana, says, <laughs> a friend of mine, an author friend of mine, David Blixt, has a theory that I love. At the end of the play, Lady Montague dies. Why? His theory is that she dies because she's the cause of the feud. Engaged to Capulet, she eloped with Montague. He theorizes that they were childhood fringe with friends, which makes the betrayal worse. And it also helps explain Capulet's over-the-top reaction to Juliet refusing Paris. He didn't get to marry the woman he loved, but Juliet will marry the woman he chose. That's her idea. Merritt, what do you think about... Um, Sally Webb Eilerson from Lower East, Lower East Biloxi, Louisiana's friend David Blick's theory. 
I, I really think that, as we've already said, the mysterious origins of this feud do give rise to some really interesting ideas and theories that have led to some super cool fan fiction and backstories and that kind of thing. Um, obviously, there's no textual basis necessarily, but it does. But that's one of those theories that you can bring to the play and it does explain some things that aren't explained in the play. And that's what's really fun about being a reader and an interpreter of, of Shakespeare. Sarah Jane? Well, the play says that she dies of grief of my son's exile. That her mm. breath is stopped by grief. And I think to ignore that and to change it to something else, it diminishes the, the power and the sadness of the ending, I think, that she dies of a broken heart, essentially, because Romeo is not around anymore. And then we also hear from Lady Capulet that her death is probably near too. She feels like she's mm. been aged by all of this. Mm. Um, so the play does give us a reason for her death, although it might seem implausible. But I, I love the idea that as uh, a reader of the play, you might go off and invent some different reasons and write stories about that. I think that's brilliant. And I think Shakespeare yeah. would have loved that. Yeah, I suspect you're right. Um, Sally mentioned uh, Lord Capulet's over-the-top reaction to Juliet refusing to marry Paris. If I told you guys, did I tell the story on the air about when I saw the outdoor theater production of Romeo and Juliet? And did I tell you about the, the drunk man who was sitting in front of us? Did we talk about this on the air? No, no. This Please is one of the do. moments Go before, on. like I, I kind of had, I liked Shakespeare, but my hair had not caught on fire for him yet, you know? And my, my then girlfriend, Sarah, and I went to this outdoor production in Portland in this this beautiful park. And we kind of sat on this, this low rise um, wall. And there was a guy, he was about my age, which at the time it was a while ago, he was probably maybe 33 years old. And clearly he'd been like living on the street and he had brought his drink with them. You know, he just had a rough go of it. And he was pretty he was pretty liquored up during Romeo and Juliet. And it was a really good production. It was a free outdoor theater production. And he's following, he's like really tracking what's going on in this dense Shakespearean language. And he, like our friend, let's call him John. John like sees what's about to happen when Capulet steps on the stage and Juliet is not going to accept the Paris is, you know, she's going to say, dad, I'm not going to marry Paris. He audibly, so that the entire audience could hear, John says, girl, you got to get out of there. You got to leave. Like he's like <laughs> calling to her on stage and like the wonderful actress didn't even flinch. She just kept rolling forward. But he was like, he was so agitated. That's amazing. He had to warn her. And I remember thinking, man, if he in his situation given how much alcohol it appears that he's consumed, just kind of the other observations that Sarah and I have made, is tracking this play and is moved enough to shout at one of the actors, like, save your skin. Something's like, Shakespeare must be powerful. You know, Shakespeare must be powerful if he has the capacity to move this guy in this situation. Okay. That is amazing. Yeah, it was, it was a real moment. And probably quite authentic. Moment. I imagine the groundlings 
in the globe would do that all the time. He's behind you. Yeah, right, right. right. <laughs> Look out for the bear. Right. <laughs> by the way, when we'll talk about this, when we do Winter's Tale, the famous stage direction, Exit by a Exit Bear. Exit Pursued by a Bear. A lot of people think it was probably a real bear. They had bear wrangling kind of around the corner. And some people think like, yeah, they brought in a real trained bear. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't know that that would pass code today. That might not pass code. Sarah Montgomery from Wrightsville, Nebraska <laughs> asks, why does Mercutio fight Tybalt? He isn't a Montague or a Capulet, correct? I know he is good friends with Romeo, but since but I don't understand why he feels passionately enough to impose himself into this feud. Also, since he's a relative of the prince, why is the prince more merciful to Romeo than his original promise? In other words, banishment instead of death. Who would like to take this? Why does Mercutio fight Tybalt? Part of it is his personality, right? He's Mercutio. He's mercurial. Uh, and he is, so he's up and down. He's easily influenced. It's a hot day. All of these kinds of things that provide kind of an outside context. Uh, there's also multiple psychological con uh, ideas that uh, have gone into this question um, that he's somehow trying to inflame Romeo to kind of come back to being a man. He feels as though he's losing his friend. And so he's uh, kind of entering into the fray in an attempt to kind of rouse Romeo's spirits. Mm. Um, and uh, there's also the uh, that he's picked a side, right? He is he's Montague's friend, so he's pro Montague. Uh, but I think that Sarah is asking a really important question, and one that has plagued plenty of uh, interpreters of Shakespeare over over the years. And so I'm curious, Sarah Jane, do you have a favorite pet theory about this one? Oh, do I have a pet theory? I don't have a pet theory. I do have an answer, but yeah, oh. go. Well, I think it's a question of honor and that hmm. Mercutio, he is mercurial, but despite that, there is a kind of steadfast love for his friend, Romeo, and it's his best friend. And it's this idea of friendship that we've lost a bit now, I think, the amicitia perfecta, the, the kind of friendship that Cicero writes about where you lay down your life for your friend. And Romeo has been insulted by Tybalt. He hasn't answered. And Mercutio stands in for him because this is the honorable thing to do. And also Tybalt is odious. Who mm -hmm. wouldn't want to fight Tybalt? Right, right. I would. <laughs> yeah. Right. No, he's awful. Yeah. So um, that's, that's what I think. But is, is there a special theory about it? I don't. Maybe there is. I don't know what the special theory is. I mean, there's always like the um, homosexual attraction. Like, yeah. isn't that like, that's, that's, that's a, a very, very play. modern new, everyone's looking for that in Shakespeare right now in academia. It's really kind of pathetic in my opinion, complete misunderstanding of the times and a friendship. Um, and a, it kind of, you know, speaks to this. And that's, that's Shakespeare tends to do that, right? He brings out his work is so enduring over so many generations that each zeitgeist, each cultural moment, each generation can, you know, kind of overlay their own pet theories onto Shakespeare. And that's part of what makes Shakespeare great. But if you're, if you 
don't like those prevailing obsessions within your culture, it can be a little annoying. And that tends to be mine. That tends to be my reaction with all of the every single play who's gay in this play. I'm so over that. (laughs) In, In fairness, in fairness, the text does have Tybalt mocking um, Mercutio, calling him Romeo's consort. So like, it's conceivable that, you know, like there were kind of like rumors they're being passed around, you know, among the Capulets and Montague, like, you know, that, that there's Mercutio plenty and Romeo of got sexual together. tension in this play already everywhere. Like so. there's enough butter to cover yeah, both sides just, of the bread. Uh, yeah. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I, I, what I, yeah, well, what I'm saying is that, he, there, there is already sexual tension with Romeo, with Juliet. Mm, There's no mm. need for Shakespeare to add that from another source in a culture that's already so masculine, do- honor dominated. I, I can't imagine that it was in Shakespeare's mind, but of course it's going to be in the minds of people interpreting the play in our generation. Right. Amanda Eaton from... Snelton, South Dakota has a simple question. Was this love at first sight? They seem madly in love before they even converse. Sarah Jane, is it love at first sight? Yes. Yeah. It's even before that. It's written in the stars. Yeah. It's completely inevitable. Romeo knows going into that party that tonight he's going to meet someone or something that's going to end up killing him. And he does. Heidi. Yeah, I agree. I think that um, even the idea of love at first sight doesn't cover, to Sarah Jane's point, doesn't yeah. really, uh, doesn't cover it. Um, because that 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 even kind of puts into it a, a sense of choice, right? I saw somebody I liked and then I fell in love with them. Um, so it's, it's much more than that. It's much deeper than that. It's much bigger than that. It's much mm. more transcendent than that. Mm. It's not a love of the eyes, is it? Mm-hmm. really it's more they do find each other beautiful as well but that's kind of a bonus yeah it's it's very much in keeping with shakespeare shakespeare loved love at first sight i mean he loved to drop characters you know into plays they see each other it happens in as you like it we could like list all of the plays in which it just happens they're stars no i'm not going to say starstruck because that that equates that kind of um superficial love at first sight with what the, with the love at first sight that Romeo and Juliet have, which does seem like they're actually starstruck with each other. Like the stars have kind of puppeteered this, mm-hmm. this meeting it's and their fortune. affection for each other. Fortune, right. Rachel Digman from Dworks, Delaware says, in act two, it was pointed out that Queen Mab, that the Queen Mab speech was impressive but I was curious as to why that part was so notable. What makes it so fantastic? I think that's a really good question. And I appreciate that question a lot. Uh, there, I, I, what I really like about the Queen Mab speech, and I'm actually so compelled. I find, Sarah Jane, your theory about that being intended for midsummer to be so compelling because it does have this quality of magic to it. And the, the linguistic elements within, within that speech are so similar to the, like the tone of midsummer night's dream. Um, I, I think one thing that I find so compelling about it is just the 
playfulness of language that Shakespeare displays, this mastery of being able to spin a world and to create an imaginative experience in the minds of the audience, while at the same time fully expressing the character who is speaking that who is saying the speech on stage, you get to know so much about Mercutio and his mind, uh, as well as having this whole visual image spun in there. And there's, when I read the Queen Mab speech or see it performed well, I've seen it performed badly a couple of times, but when I see it performed well, um, I just feel this sense of like fantastical delight. And I always imagine Shakespeare like writing with a quill by moonlight, just like smiling, just like this is, I've just discovered what I can do with language, like the power of language to create a world and to move the audience. And, And the Queen Mab speech for me is kind of an embodiment of that power of language over the imagination. Sarah Jane? Hmm, well said, Heidi. That's right. It's, it's the power of the language to evoke visually this fantastical character of Queen Mab in her chariot. And so a stage such as the Globe, which, I mean, it did have fairly technical and sophisticated sets and props and things. But this, you know, this kind of has a cinematic quality where... Hmm. If it was a film, if, it, if it's ever kept in, it's usually cut. This is the bit where you could show a kind of reverie and do this as a voiceover because it's so specific. This concept that Mercutio has of this, this queen of dreams is very precise and she's a tiny, magical character. And Shakespeare, I think, has invented her out of thin air. Mm. Mm-hmm. I don't think we have any precedent for her, nor does she exist in any of the other plays. And there's also a dramatic climax to the speech that, first of all, it's about this fantastical character. And then, as Heidi was saying, Mercutio starts to talk about the different characters who are dreaming. And then we start to learn something about perhaps some of his fears, some of the things mm-hmm. that haunt him in his sleep. And he becomes so distressed that that Romeo has to stop him. He's so Mm. worked up by his own monologue that he has to be silenced. So it's quite a feat for an actor, I think, to get this right. Heidi, what you said about just, you know, Shakespeare's unparalleled ability with words reminds me of that Virginia Woolf quote. Uh, It was as if thought were plunged into a sea of words and Mm. came up dripping. Oh, I love, love that. that. Like my one of my favorite descriptions of Shakespeare's ability. Emily Frick Hurachek, who's actually from Ipswich, not too terribly far from you, Sarah Jane, mm. um, has a question. Did Shakespeare write strong women characters because women were actually strong in his time? Or was he writing amazing parts for his favorite actors who were men portraying women? Side note. Emily's daughter, Claire, played Juliet, and her son, Gabe, was Paris in their local homeschool production this month. So congratulations to Claire and Gabe. Well done, both of you. Did Shakespeare write strong women characters because women were actually strong in his time? Or was he writing parts for his favorite actors who were men portraying women? Any sense of, like, what do you guys think about this one? This is such a big question. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe it's the second one. I prefer to think that Shakespeare knew and loved strong women. 
um, because he could write strong male actors for his favorite actors, right? Like, so that, I'm not sure I think that that covers the entire reason, although it's a good pragmatic one and one I've read, I've read before. But I mean, women, people were the same in Shakespeare's time. Like they, they, so if I was born in Shakespeare's time, I would still be a strong woman. So uh, that, that's Sarah Jane would too, right? So opportunities may have been limited, social expectations and conventions may have been different, but human nature has and always will be the same. And however, there is a very, very good practical reason for wanting to write very strong female characters. And that's the fact that a lot of his plays were written during the reign of Queen Elizabeth um, and dedicated to the queen. And she was clearly a very strong woman, a popular woman. Um, And so the idea of a a very strong and delightful and uh, uh, female character would have been appealing to the queen and would have been appealing to the public. There was no resistance to the idea that women were capable of doing great things because their political leader was was a queen. Um, And so in spite of the fact that, uh, that women's lives were different then than they are now. Uh, human nature was still the same, and there were plenty of strong women in the public eye. Sarah Jane? That's right. I think women throughout the centuries are both strong and weak, and that Shakespeare is interested in the complexity of, of women. I think the beauty of his characters are that they are neither solely strong nor solely weak, but have many dimensions. I mean, who is the strong woman in this play? Is it mm-hmm. Juliet? Is it the nurse? Mm. They are both vulnerable in their different ways, as well as having all kinds of powers too. So I don't think it's specific to the time at all. I mean, if we think about some of Shakespeare's other female characters, Volumnia, for example, in Coriolanus. Mm-hmm. Right. She's taken from Plutarch. <laughs> so, right, right. This is more about archetypal women, and these women are timeless. Otherwise, I don't think we would still be acting them now. And I think we get quite hung up on this point that there are male actors playing the women. I, I just think that that was the norm, that it wouldn't, mm. there was no option to have women on stage, so that wouldn't really matter. Do you see what I mean? It just does, it doesn't become an issue anymore. Um, and it's... It's certainly something I experienced because here at school, we're all boys. We very rarely get girls in to act. And so men, boys are cast as women all the time in plays here. And it just, it's just playing a part. It doesn't really mm. matter. Um, so I, I don't think he specifically wrote strong women for big, burly male actors specifically. I think that's maybe a, a slightly misleading idea. Um, but then, of course, there are always moments where Shakespeare is able to make a joke because he knows he's got a man in a woman's costume. Um, but that's sort of the exception rather than the rule, I think. I, I read a book, I've mentioned it not on the Romeo and Juliet podcast, but on a previous one, I can't remember which, called The Greatest Actors in the World. And the theory of the author, he didn't make a big deal out of it, but he looked at a string of really great female characters that kind of were all grouped together in Shakespeare's corpus. And his theory was that they had a young male actor who was particularly gifted as an actor whose voice had not broken yet. And Shakespeare wrote this string of really great female characters. I think Lady Macbeth is in there, a couple others. 
But then the boy's voice broke and Shakespeare's like, okay, so I can't cast him in fee. I'm just going to like cast him in as male characters now. Um, and so that was part of the reasoning of this author that he put forward about why there was this string of really great, strong female characters. Cause he had like a really great young male whose voice hadn't mm-hmm. broken yet. And I find right. that really plausible. You know, the guy, the, the, the author of the book was very candid that, you know, he had to speculate, but I think that's sure. pretty good speculation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's always pragmatic reasons for everything. Right. So, but I don't, I don't know that I buy that. That's the full reason. Cause you could give that kid like not a great part and with lots of lines. So, I mean, his Shakespeare's women are just so compelling mm. and um, there it's, it seems really obvious to me that there's, a, some kind of reason that Shakespeare did that, that was internal, that was personal, that had to do with his own experience with women. But I think that that could be a factor for sure. Mm-hmm. Claire Patton from Mont Richmond, Colorado, not too far from you, Heidi, says, do you think that the specific <laughs> ways... <laughs> we should get together for coffee. <laughs> Pour over. Let's do it. Claire, I've offended probably everybody by putting, you know, like who really wants to be from Mont Richmond, Colorado? It's Lots a non place. It's a compliment. Yep. <laughs> it's not a real place, Heidi. I just made it up. You've also you've also planted a homeschool in Ipswich, which I'm excited about, Tim. I know. Oh. Yeah, you should check it out. <laughs> yeah. Like they you know, prospecting well. for Elizabeth. Yeah, they put on great <laughs> plays, apparently. Uh, Claire wants to know, do you think the specific ways that Romeo and Juliet die are symbolic and or possibly subvert expectations? Romeo dies by poison, Juliet by stabbing herself. I typically associate poison as a feminine means of suicide and stabbing as a masculine means. So are there deaths in any way symbolic or meant to subvert expectations? I think that's plausible. I I actually like that. I mean, Juliet's is given such a robust, active way to commit suicide, right? That takes just, she has to steal herself for it. And in every really good production I've seen, there's like a moment in which she's stealing herself to, to the task. Um, And I think that the idea of Romeo poisoning himself really is an objective correlative. The story that he's been telling himself, the, you know, how how quickly overtaken he is, you know, by his own emotions and his own melancholy and his own fears, and um, does kind of seem as as though the poisoning fits his his uh, trajectory in the in the story a little bit better than such an active and violent means of stabbing. So I certainly, I've I've certainly always taken it that way. Yeah. Sir Jane. I think this is a really interesting point. I hadn't thought about it before. I have some kind of vague thoughts in the region of of this question. I'm not sure if I'm going to answer it particularly well. Um, One thing that struck me as interesting is that in Brooke's poem, when Romeo first sees Juliet, the effect she has on him is described as poison spreading mm. through all his veins. So I thought that was very interesting. That's true. Huh. Um, I don't know if I agree that piercing, stabbing is a masculine death. So if we think back to the Roman Empire, it was a huge shame for a man to be pierced by a dagger or a spear because it had obvious sexual symbolism and it would be seen as dishonorable. And 
Indeed, in Roman culture, I think there's something very powerful about the fact that Christ on the cross um, is also, he suffers that shame in that he's pierced in his side. It was not something honorable that, um, that warriors, uh, warriors would, would see that as, as a shame, essentially. So mm. I think you could actually see her death as a very feminine one um, because she's pierced. But I don't know whether poison is a specifically masculine one to flip it on its head. I would need to read more about that. And I think um, taking it further, the idea that the Capulets are feminine and the Montagues are masculine, that doesn't quite work for me because Tybalt, I think, is the most um, aggressive. Overtly toxic right. masculine. I was going to say, for one yeah. to another, yeah, he's toxic. He's king of the pricks. He's actually called mm-hmm. king, king of cats. Cazzo is, is the mm-hmm. word for the male genitalia in Italian. So... He's masculine. Mm-hmm. It made me think of that old legend about Queen Eleanor and Rosamund. Do you remember when she goes to Rosamund's bower? And uh, because because Ros- her husband, the king, it's Henry the third or the second, second. Um, is having an affair with this beautiful young woman. And so Queen Eleanor goes to her bower and says, you are going to die today. Choose between a cup of poison and a dagger. And she sits and she waits until Rosamond makes a choice. Um, and so that this scene always makes me think of that, that there's, there's this, you are going to die for love. You are going to die for your sins against love. You may take your, you may pick, in, you know, you may choose between your manner of death and there's both of them there in that scene. Interesting. Really interesting. I have to go back to, the king of cats and tell those story. My family were Macintosh. And for a while we were head, we were the head of several clans in Scotland, you know, as Macintoshes do. We anyway. Um, and they were all cat clans. They're all cats as part of their there were cats on each of these clans' crests. And there's a cat on our crest. So we kind of developed the Macintosh clan, developed this little moniker, which was pet not the cat without a glove, which I take to mean, you better show some respect. So I got this little pendant. My, you guys know that we, I lost my dad recently. And so I've just been, I don't know, I've just been thinking like little ways in which I could kind of like remember his name. And so I got this little pendant that says, pet not the cat without a glove. And it has a little cat, you know, on it. And I showed it to my sister because I was all proud of it. I sh- okay, first, I showed it to my brother, and my brother's like, oh, it's so great. I love it. It's so great. I want to get a tattoo. My brother's got a bunch of tattoos. I want to get a tattoo that says, pet not the cat without a glove. And then I show it to my sister, and she kind of rolls her eyes and shakes her head. And I was like, toxic masculinity? And she said, yep. <laughs> yeah, she was teasing. She was teasing, but it still made me laugh. Wow. That is, that's pretty funny, actually. <laughs> Why aren't you laughing harder, Heidi? I'm never going to have that image on, like, out of my head at this point. But it's, it's funny. <laughs> Debbie Howley Wallace from Pittswoggle, Ontario, says, with an eye toward sexual compliment. <laughs> just, just, I know, I'm just getting on with that. I need to, like, I got to practice. I got to be a little more calloused about these. Um, with an eye towards sexual complementarity, Juliet is clearly the driver of the relationship, which is something we tend to see as masculine. 
I keep seeing Verona as the whole fallen world trying to recapture the divine echoes in marital love. Are the Capulets particularly feminine in the way that they behave toward the feud? Are the Montagues masculine? So this is interesting, kind of following up on the last question. I'd argue, says Debbie, that Juliet is not necessarily masculine, but rather is the full has the full flowering of true feminine genius and thus leads Romeo to an authentic masculinity. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church. I'm just thinking out loud here. I feel like I know enough to ask the question and not remotely enough to be able to answer them, says Debbie Howley Wallace. Any thoughts on that? Is this kind of... um? Is there a way to read the play in a kind of symbolic, maybe typographical way? This couple has been planted within the fallen world that is Verona, and they're kind of recapturing the divine echoes in marital love. Here's here, I think that I really like the idea of Juliet's kind uh, of. Um, the development of her femininity being a potentially healing force for Romeo's broken masculinity. I think that that is, if, if they could have been married, if this was a comedy, right? If they, because this is what we see in so many other comedies, you have this wonderful, strong women. I'm thinking of, um, Rosalind and uh, Beatrice and, you know, you have these um, and hero even with her self-sacrifice. Like you have all of these, these women in the comedies and these men that at first blush are unworthy of them that have to strive for them, that, that, that have to be made worthy. Um, and sometimes that's more satisfying than others, depending on the play. Uh, and, and so I, I think that the idea of a woman, uh, a, a very, a, a woman having that like strength and that tenderness united together that brings so much healing to a man. I think that's definitely in Shakespeare. And that could be potentially in Romeo and Juliet if they were to be able to live together and be married. However, because the play ends the way it does, I don't think that that is a message that Romeo is necessarily trying to get across. This is a tragedy. Uh, and I think the jury's still out on whether their death really actually does heal the city. Mm -hmm. And this is something that we've talked about uh, in the last, especially in the last podcast. Um, and so I, I like the idea of it a lot, but I think it probably works better in some other comedies than it does in, um, in Romeo and Juliet. I had a thought about some of the feminine symbols associated traditionally with romantic love which are subverted in the play. And this question made me think of those. So the moon is stereotypically associated with women for obvious reasons, the menstrual cycle. And Juliet rejects the moon early in the play. Swear not by mm. the moon, the inconstant moon. The inconstant moon. Don't hold me up against that. And also the rose, the, the blooming, beautiful rose that she also says, Rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Don't really care much for roses either. So she's something greater than stereotypical femininity, isn't she? And um, that, that was really my main thought in response to that question. I don't think yeah. I would be able to go as far as to say 
there are specific gender roles to each family or anything like that. But I, I think that Juliet is quite a remarkable woman and that Shakespeare shows this through the imagery. I like that. We're about to do a pivot, you guys, because we have some questions about movie versions of Shakespeare plays. Martha Burgundy, from actually not far from me, from South Decatur, Atlanta, um, says, do you have favorite movie versions of Shakespeare's plays and why? She mentions Kiss Me Kate, 10 Things I Hate About You, West Side Story, and Teresa Blanton from Blairsville, Ohio asks, can you guys just talk about West Side Story? So I've never seen Kiss Me Kate. I've never seen 10 Things I Hate About You. I've never seen West Side Story. So I'm useless. All of my favorite Shakespeare productions are kind of straight up Shakespeare. Like I nerd out on, you know, all who's the last guy to play Hamlet. Oh, it's David Tennant did a great Hamlet. That's kind of like the extent of my Shakespeare knowledge. Can you guys help? Do you have a favorite kind of like Shakespeare knockoff movie? I, well, here's the thing. I think that the question, the spirit of the question is really profound, which is, wow, these plays are so enduring that you can make so many other stories out of them, which is exactly what Shakespeare did to go back to the idea of the source material. Nowadays, we're so obsessed with an originality, right? That, uh, that, that you're not even considered a real author unless you like made up the plot out of your head. If, it, if it's something like Kiss Me Kate, which is a retelling of The Taming of the Shrew, it's good. It's really good. Um, if, you, if, you have, if you do that, then instead of just being Kiss Me Kate, it is a retelling of Taming of the Shrew, right? Um, and then you don't get any credit because you didn't make it up. Shakespeare did. You just adapted it. Um, and I think that that again, speaks to how great Shakespeare is um, and how how easily his plays can be translated into every generation and retold with their own particular story. And what's fun about an adaptation, something like West Side Story, is that you can do it without having necessarily to be true to the source text, right? So you can tell your own story, by, but also kind of take the plot. Uh, and I, I, I think that that's, you know, that's kind of fun. Um, I think I really do like, I do really like West Side Story. Um, mm. I really liked 10 Things I Hate About You. I thought that was a great movie. Um, and, but I, sometimes I don't even notice. Here's the, here's the thing. I'm like, uh, my job is like to read books and talk about books. When I saw 10 Things I Hate About You, I didn't know it was a Shakespeare adaptation. Mm -hmm. I just thought it was like just a, a romantic comedy. And then later on, someone told me, same with Clueless, you know, it's a retelling of Emma. And I didn't know that. I just like saw the movie and then mm. went home and then I read about it in a review. I was like, Oh, <laughs> so I'm now kind of dense that way. <laughs> like, then I was like, Oh yeah, but I'm, I I'm kind of dense that way. I don't always, <laughs> I don't always, I can't always tell. I have to confess that I've never seen West Side Story. This is something I will put right as soon as possible. I'm told it's absolutely brilliant. Um, I'm a bit like you, Tim. I think the, the Shakespeare plays I watch are usually just the film adaptations of the straight up right. Right. text. Um, and we talk about those all the time, so I won't bore you with that. I do have a little bit of um, Star Wars trivia, if you like. Oh, yeah. So, yes. Which Shakespeare play provides the template for the political developments in episode three, Revenge of the Sith? 
Do you like oh Star my Wars? Goodness. Yes. I don't know that I know Revenge of the Sith well enough. Like, like I don't know that I remember that plot line. Oh, that's the one when when he's like has he's trying to avenge his mother and he gets like so angry and he turns oh, against it, his wife and is it the last one everything. that was done by George Lucas before it got sold into Disney sphere? I don't know that. David but it's Kern the one it's that. before anyway, it's like, it does not know that. It's before tell us, tell us, Vader Sarah becomes Jane. Var, Darth Vader and it's he gets all butchery. It's the one when butchery. he becomes him. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Which, yeah, so tell us Sarah Jane. So it's Julius Caesar. Really? That was my first thought. And then I thought, no, maybe it's Richard the <laughs> Third. Really? Um, and I need go to, I need to go scared. back and I'm going to leave you with a big anticlimax now where I need to go back and watch it again and remind <laughs> myself exactly how that works. But, yeah. Um, I promise you it's, it's Julius Caesar. Yeah. <laughs> I believe you. So Sarah Jane just closed cards, her eyes and she was like, I, I'm right about this, right? I just can't I, remember I, I, the details. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so the, on, in terms of shows though, I, I'm really interested. I, I like like the golden age of television, all the big, big shows. So House of Cards was based on Macbeth and ah. um, that was very good. I really, I, I really like that show. There's some inappropriate parts. I mean, use discretion, but I think that's a very, a show worth watching. For sure. And then there was also um, the one about the biker gang. What was the one about the biker game that was based on Hamlet? Sons, Sons of, Anarchy. of Anarchy. And that one I cannot recommend as I, you would need to fast forward like half of each show. I, we did we did end up not watching the entire series, but, but it's so, so, so extremely violent. But it is based on Hamlet. And the, the, these, but Shakespeare picked these plots that are so enduring, stories of betrayal and love and death and war. I, I mean, he just has this, quality of cosmic relevance in his greatest plays that lends itself to the retelling of each story in a fresh new way from generation to generation. Sometimes that works really well. And sometimes it ends up being really lame Mm. um, and just not working uh, depending on how much propaganda or how preachy it is or how poorly done the production is like that kind of thing. But just the, the plots themselves are, are even though he didn't, he 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 recycled them himself from his sources in a lot of cases, but still they're just so powerful. Mm. There's one um, movie version of of Shakespeare that I really love, which is not it's not a kind of straight up remake. It's it was done by the BBC a long time ago in the 1990s, and it's called Shakespeare Retold, and they're really short, sort of 30 minute productions. Huh. And they are my favorite Shakespeare's. They are so really? good. Okay. There's um, The Taming of the Shrew with Rufus Sewell. It's absolutely brilliant. There's a Macbeth with James McAvoy and it's set in a restaurant. And he is, he, huh. he's the chef. I've heard of this. I've heard yes, of that. It's, it's good, so brilliant. huh? Yes. Really? And there's Midsummer Night's Dream as well with a very famous English comic actor who's named Johnny... Johnny, what's his name? Anyway, those are great, but I don't know how you get hold of them. They're quite hard to come by, even on, even on Amazon. They're sort of out of um, print. Two quick things. Um, I, I've never seen West Side Story, but have you heard they're doing a remake? It's coming out apparently this year. And do you know who's directing it? Who? 
Steven Spielberg. Wow. Oh, wow. So that's going to be hopefully worth paying attention to. Um, I was thinking back to when I had James Shapiro on the show. He did the book Shakespeare in a Divided America. And his book talks about Kiss Me Kate, the actual musical production that the movie kind of morphed out of. Apparently the movie um, takes some of the harder edges off of the musical. But originally Kiss Me Kate, which is of course, you know, kind of taking plot and characters from Taming of the Shrew was developed in post-World War II America when there's this big debate. Women have been like running the war front at home. They've been out in factories, in offices, and now all the men are coming home from World War II. There's a lot of friction that's happening. Like, you know, women are kind of like, do I have to go back home? I mean, not everybody wanted to go back home. Um, and so Kiss Me Kate apparently is very deliberately trying to address the kind of friction that was happening with all of the GIs returning back home. I just found that really interesting. Hmm, that's cool. Let's do one more question, and then we're going to start talking about the movie. Last question, uh, Katie Lerner Patton from Nashville, Tennessee. By the way, I know Katie. She actually is from Nashville, Tennessee. That's why I came up with such a like <laughs> mundane name. That seems right. Yeah. If we say that Romeo and Juliet is a tragedy of fate, not their own character flaws, which I agree with, says Katie, then why do we do this to ourselves by reading slash watching it? Cue Aristotle and catharsis, I guess. It seems to show us sadness for the sake of sadness, and we love it. Why? Or is this too, or is this analysis too simplistic? It's a great question. Like I, I got to the end of Romeo and Juliet and it kills me. It's so sad. And you keep waiting. I mean, I, I, I just, the first time that I saw Romeo and Juliet or read the, you know, classics illustrated, I remember thinking, wait, this can't be the end. There has to be some like resurrection moment or something like that, but there isn't, there just isn't one. So like Katie's question is a good one. Why do we do this to ourselves? It is. I think it's such a good question, like such a good question. Uh, And I think there is such a paradox in human life between fate and free will um, and also love and death and, 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 and Romeo and Juliet, like lives there, right? Right at that, right in that paradox. And I think that's part of the reason why we're so drawn to the story and why it, it must be a tragedy. It has to have a tragic end. Mm. Um, and it's the reason why Romeo and Juliet is so enduring and say, as you like it is like, not doesn't have the same hold over the public imagination, isn't retold 500 different ways, but it's still, you know, it's a beloved play, but it's nobody's sitting up in the middle of the night thinking about as you like it, but you're sitting up in the middle of the night thinking about Romeo and Juliet. Right. Right. And, and I think it is because of that. Um, It is that, that sense of like dwelling on the razor's edge between these paradoxes of human existence that Shakespeare so brilliantly uh, takes us into and forces us to wrestle with. Sarah Jane. Uh, This is a question that's been asked through the ages. Augustine writes about this 
in um, his confessions, why watch tragedy? Um, there, are lot, there are many things to ruminate here. I think one thing I wanted to say is that we, we do get a bit fixated with this myth that prolepsis means the plot is ruined and you can't enjoy the play. Spoilers aren't really spoilers, are they? If it's a good play, it's a good story. We love the story. It's the fact that we know what happens that makes us love it because mm. it's so good. You want to hear it again. And uh, really a story or a film that can't, could, can't kind of outlive spoilers, it's not a very good one, is it? Because really- That's a great point. You're just going for That's the cheap really thrill to be surprised yeah. once and then it can't ever do it again. But a play like Romeo and Juliet surprises us again and again. And it's because we know what's going to happen that we're so amazed that it can still surprise us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so- I think that's why it doesn't matter that we know what the ending is. And uh, and Shakespeare tells us in the first monologue anyway. Yeah, exactly. And mm-hmm, you go into yeah. the play knowing the title is the, the tragical history of Romeo and right. Juliet. They're going to die. So um, why watch tragedy though? Why put ourselves through the anguish is, is a really interesting question. And that's something Aristotle, Augustine, Francis Bacon, they've all discussed at length over the years. Bacon says that if we study tragedy, particularly revenge tragedy, we keep our wounds green. It's, it's sort mm. of a way of um, keeping our sense of injustice alive in a way. And Wow, I like that. Mm. I like that. Come on, Sarah Jane. Well, you demurred. Yes, I, I do agree. I mean, this isn't a revenge tragedy, is it? Exactly. But it's... There's something about tragedy maybe even having a kind of medicinal effect mm. that um, it, can, it could spur you on to seek justice or, on the other hand, you might see justice done on the stage and therefore feel some kind of sense of attention being resolved. Um, but the suffering that we, we delight in is, is something to do with our human condition. I don't know what it is. Augustine said that it was something terrible in us that we just delighted in seeing other people suffer and that that was that we shouldn't really watch plays <laughs> hmm. it wasn't a good thing to do hmm. whereas of course Aristotle said well no that's why we go it's because it's cathartic it's because we experience some kind of cleansing uh, having lived through that pain again without having to actually really see it happen in our own lives so I, I want to interject I don't want to go too far down this road, but I wonder if Augustine had seen Shakespeare or maybe even if he had seen the Greek tragedies instead of Roman tragedy, like Roman tragedy, like even, like even Seneca's plays are just so bloody. And, and, and there's, as opposed to maybe Sophocles, there's a kind of, um, there's a pessimism built into a lot of Roman tragedy. And I wonder that, that I don't, it's not as if um, the Greek tragedies have an up ending. They don't, but it seems at the end of Oedipus Rex, at Antigone, something has been made right that was broken. And I'd sometimes, I, I won't claim to be an expert in Roman tragedy, but there's a sense that Roman tragedy is it's kind of senseless. It's tragedy and it's senseless at the end. And I, I just wonder if Augustine kind of he was, you know, it was bad TV back then, you know, 
Whereas I wonder if he would have a different opinion if it was Shakespeare or if he was more familiar with Greek tragedy. Maybe he was familiar with Greek tragedy. I mean, the man was as well-read as anyone in history. So it's possible if he could lay hands on it, he probably did lay hands on it. I cut you off, Sarah Jane. No, you didn't at all. I, I'm, okay. I'm really, I like that idea that Augustine maybe just didn't see a really good National theater production, for example. Okay, that good segue. <laughs> that was a really good segue. The National Theater production um, hosted here in the U.S. by PBS starring Josh O'Connor and Jesse Buckley, uh, directed by Simon Godwin. Uh, it went up on August, uh, April 23rd here. I watched it when I was down in Florida. I'm going to start. I'm going to start with the things that I liked. I thought that the idea behind it, which was kind of a camera within the stage style production, I thought was beautiful. There were moments when Romeo is climbing the balcony toward Juliet and that huge luminescent moon is hanging behind her. I thought it was gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. I thought the camera work was exquisite. I thought the lighting was exquisite. So a lot of the kind of trappings of the production I found to be really compelling. The end of that segment, what did you guys like about the production? I thought that it, they did a really good job developing Juliet's strength of character, the trajectory of her growth mm. uh, throughout the play. Um, that, I mean, she was the star of this production. Mm. Um, and I thought they, that that was very well done. Um, I really, I loved, I, I, was, I loved the scene when she's deciding whether or not to drink the apothecaries. Uh -huh. I thought that was lovely when she's sitting in her bed and she runs back out to get comfort from her family and everyone's gone. And it's the, I, I just thought that that whole scene was done so beautifully. And the three of us were saying just a few episodes ago that we wish that scene got more play. We wish it was more famous. Right. We wish that it was a bigger deal. And I thought that scene was the heart of the play. Mm. I, I, I really thought like, that's the scene that stands out to me the most. Um, and, and I, I thought it's one of the only productions I've ever seen that they gave that, that particular scene it's due in such a famous play that's so well known and other scenes usually get the, the bigger stage presence. So I thought that was beautiful. Um, and I actually liked, this might be controversial to the two of you. I don't know, but I actually like the way that they made Romeo real broody and melancholy and a little mm. bit more adolescent than her. I thought that his, you know, like sad puppy eyes and his wrinkly forehead, like, I think it worked really well, especially in the first half of the play. I think it derailed a little bit towards, uh, towards the end, but I think it worked very well. And also same thing, Tim, I thought that the staging, that the camera work was really creative. I really liked how they started the play in the green room and how they just, I thought that was super I cool. Like I too. was unprepared for it. And I was like, I like this. I think it's really good. So, and I, again, you guys might disagree with me on this one. I, and I know this is common, but I think it works every single time. I really like Lord Capulet as Lady Capulet. I think that's great. Hmm. I think that's a good, um, I, I, yeah, I think that the tension between mother and daughter worked super well in this production. I've seen it done badly, but at this particular one, I thought, I thought it was kind of cool. Sarah Jane, before I come to you, I, I do want to jump in on 
kind of the broodiness of Josh O'Connor's Romeo. I agree with you, Heidi, that like at the beginning, I thought that it worked at the beginning. One of my big complaints is that when it came time to exact revenge for Mercutio's death and he goes after Tybalt, I was like, Josh, are you- That was the flattest scene I've ever seen in my life. Goodness. It was totally. Are you but, taking like, well, we're out doing, the, like, Are you doing laundry, or are you going to like avenge your best friend's it death was with terrible? Okay, it was and terrible. I have to say, but, I have to say, yeah, yeah. That Josh O'Connor, I loved the crown. I loved Josh O'Connor as Prince William, and part of the reason that I loved him so much as Prince William is that he's so world weary. He just looks like he's just like fighting this internal battle always. And I just thought it really worked for that character. Mm-hmm. And I thought that Romeo, you have to have some idealism if you're going to play Romeo. And I just, I couldn't see it from Josh O'Connor. I just didn't see it. Maybe I missed it. I don't know. I just thought he was miscast. I thought I think he's a wonderful, beautiful actor. And I think this is not the role for him. I hate to say it. Sarah Jane, well, I said you, the things you, I liked, yeah. What did you like? I, I also thought that Romeo was great. I I liked his um, his kind of vulnerability. Um, he was really good. I also thought the the speech that Heidi mentioned was the pinnacle of the play. I think it was mm-hmm. that one, and also the wedding night speech too. That so mm-hmm. so much was cut as well, though, which I I was disappointed by. But um, those things worked well. I thought the nurse was very good as well actually I thought she she came off well having been cut um brutally cut so so those things worked well I think yeah Romeo was a real strength and some of Juliet's speeches were as standalone pieces very impressive okay (laughs) now were were there any things that you weren't crazy about in the production Anyone? <laughs> Anyone at all? I do have a couple of minor quibbles and then uh-huh. a couple of major problems. Um, minor quibbles. Juliet was too old. Mm. Um, she was a great actress, to your point. She she's a great actress. And I I have I actually don't have any problems at all with her performance. I think she was great, but just she's she was too old to um I actually feel that way. I feel that way also in everybody's favorite movie, Sense and Sensibility. And I think Eleanor Dashwood, played by Emma Thompson, was too old. She was too old for the part. She was too old for Beatrice. You know what I mean? And she also played Beatrice and she was too old. The the part should be played by a young girl um, in Romeo and Juliet. Uh, I thought there was very little energy or chemistry uh, on the big scenes, like Energy. even when they're falling and I was like, are you guys like tired? Do you all have COVID? Oh my gosh. What's going I, on? Like, I know, I know. Because I kept saying to myself, the this is the moment in the rehearsal process where the director is like, people, energy. We, we had, you know, it's like, it happens in every production and they happen to film the night that like the whole, everyone was just like without energy. They didn't like need they didn't have their coffee that day or I don't know, but I was, especially that, especially that Mercutio's death scene was just like so flat. flat. Um, I just was like, this is, this is a really big deal. Like, like go have an espresso or something and come back. The whole um, play pivots on this and we're. Right. Yeah, I also thought solitaire. that the, are you not happy speech there are, or the, there are you happy speech 
there, there are Romeo's, to your point, Tim, there's Romeo's world weariness and melancholy failed the scene. He should have had more energy. He should have been, he should have expressed more emotion. Um, and then my problem with the Mercutio, and this is a quibble, this isn't the big, the, the big thing. My problem with the Mercutio Benvolio coupling there. I mean, that didn't work. I mean, again, it's like, who's gay in this play? Let's play Russian roulette. Like, I'm tired of that. I don't think it's interesting at all. I'm tired of that in Shakespeare's, in Shakespeare adaptations. Um, but I think it didn't work for this play, not just because of that, but because it undercuts Mercutio's loyalty to Romeo. And that is the, that's the touchstone of Mercutio's character. And Sarah Jane alluded to that earlier. And so I thought, as I was watching this scene, you know, they make out or whatever, which again, like, why do you need that? But, and the reason why it didn't work is not just because of that, but because then what motivation does Mercutio have? Yeah. So it, it mutes his loyalty to, it to undercuts Romeo. it. Absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. I agree. Can I say, mention while we're kind of like talking about directorial choices, there's the director made a choice to have Juliet during the opening party scene where she and Romeo meet. Um, he makes this directorial decision and I was like, oh, this might be a long night. Juliet is, you know, at the beginning of the play, everyone's telling Juliet what she's supposed to do, what she's going to do. She's going to marry Paris. Her parents are telling her. But the first time that we really kind of get the camera on Juliet, what is she doing? She's, dancing. She's definitely dancing behind a mic. And you're like, there's this kind of, I just couldn't understand why they put her behind the mic because she is at this point in the play, a, like, she doesn't have like really an authentic self. And we like start to see it as we like, as we, you know, start to see who Juliet is. She's boy, there is so much to this young woman. But we don't know that at the beginning of the play, and then we put her behind the mic, and she's kind of the head of the band, which is like you know, like the ultimate sort of like self authentication role in modern society is kind of like you know behind the mic at a rock show. I was like, this. I, I got really critical at that point. I, I, I so started to become a little bit cynical about it. That goes to my. I have two major, not just quibbles. The ones I said were yeah. quibbles. I These are big two, deals. Major big deals, which why I would say this production failed for me because of these two things. The first one is that party scene. I thought it was, I was so disappointed in it because of the reason that you said, because that entire scene, the fact that it was this like body party and that Juliet was leading the charge, it completely undermines the purity and the transcendence of their love. So, and you can only assume that to be intentional, especially because their, their embedded sonnet that we made a big deal of, which is a big deal, is about transcendence. It's about saintliness. It's about love, true love. It's about divine love. And to completely gut that by making this about this seductive kind of like, she's the star of the show. And then he's so attracted to her and it has this, uh, this 
sexuality to it. I thought that that completely from that point on, I was, I was lost. The second major problem that I have, and this to me is the capstone is I've never seen a more nihilistic production of Romeo and Juliet because they didn't put the family reconciliation. It ended with Mm. their death. There was nothing redeeming about their love. They just died. So Wait, that Heidi, coupled, I thought that the fathers, I thought the fathers are kind of like doing a handshake at the end. They Did sit I? there around their grave together. It's not clear. There's no words. Huh. They completely leave out the reconciliation. It is their death. It shows the families gathering and mourning around the tomb. And that's it. And that's the end of the production. So the entire point to your and they cut that. Um the that prince? just all of it. Mm. So what we have then is two people who fell in love because they met at a wild party and then they died. And so in every way, it's the most nihilistic modern version of the play I've ever seen. And those are not just quibbles that in my opinion, cut out the entire heart of the play. It's not even Romeo and Juliet anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So Sarah Jane thoughts. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to chime with you there. I think, yep. <laughs> I think it was even worse than a clean cutting out the heart of the play. It was sort of like mangling it and leaving bits mm-hmm. in because if they had properly been consistent with this carnal vision of the play, then the friar would have had to go too, because it makes absolutely no sense that Juliet and oh, Romeo would go and point. see the friar. They, why are they going to see a Roman Catholic friar in the middle of the play? It makes no sense at all anymore, unless you keep the big cosmological vision of Shakespeare's play from the outset. So, and, and the other thing is that, you know, their first kiss with that Petrarchan sonnet is so powerful and it's completely undermined in this production because it's paralleled by another one. So it's not one kiss. It's Romeo yes. and Juliet are kissing and then the camera cuts to Benvolio and Mercutio kissing as well. It's not, that's not the point. Mm-hmm. The point is the language and the action mirrors and that's the beautiful harmony yes, of the play. totally, So this totally. director, Simon Godwin, I'm sorry, you didn't understand this play at all. You need to go back to school. I was very bored by it. I was bored by all the Brechtian rehearsal clothes and all the cliches. I thought the set, um, contrary to you, Tim, I thought it was ugly. I thought the set was very mm. ugly. I thought that Juliet also was rather ugly and needed some paint on the old barn door. I think she needs to be a beautiful character. <laughs> and she she played it with no makeup on. Why did she have a Southern Dublin accent when the rest of her family spoke with RP English accents? Made no sense at all. Huh. Um, and she did do some very, very good speeches, but as a mm-hmm. character, she didn't hold together at all for the reasons you say. She's a kind of yuppie pop star, but then suddenly she's worried about losing her virginity. Makes no sense at all. No. Um, I thought the music of the play was ghastly, this kind of ghastly thumping. There was no um, music in the play, really, if you compare it to something like Zeffirelli's production. Zeffirelli. Mm-hmm. And that's the one thing they could have got right, given that this was going to be a film production. Um, I thought the balcony was ugly. Um, oh, boy, I just, I liked the balcony. I the that big, come on, that was big good. moon behind it. Oh, the I thought it was beautiful. The lighting was good, but the actual set, it was just a kind of basic wrought iron black balcony mm. that was they could have done so much with that it was i thought it was very lazy it looked sort of industrial and and kind of suburban what was the point well i think that was purposeful i think to your point everything that you're saying they did on purpose right to 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 kind of modernize it and to minimize i think intentionally minimize 
uh, this idea of transcendence. I think it was like, well, look what they're talking about. And yet look at the background, look at the music, look at the staging, look at the way we're dressed, look at the fact that nobody's really trying, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that they're intentionally undercutting the transcendence of their love in order to say, look, they just died. Yeah, this is all about um, this existential existential physical high. I I took that, I might be naive, but I just took that to be what you said, Sarah Jane, like he just didn't understand this play. Like I think he got, you know, kind of a cut up script uh, or maybe he cut it up himself, but he just didn't understand the play. But, you know, there might have been just this sort of like aversion to like the metaphysics of the play, which is like, like what makes this play so magnificent? One of the things that mm-hmm. makes this play so magnificent, I just thought that he like just didn't get it. Yeah. But maybe he had. Maybe you're right. That would be a much more charitable interpretation I'm than stick I. With that. I don't that know. It's true. It I purpose. don't know. I, yeah. I think yes, yeah, it's one of those two things, isn't it? I think so many beautiful, subtle speeches were cut and replaced by long close-ups of like thrusting and t-shirt ripping, as if that was the interesting <laughs> thing in the play. Um. Yeah. And like getting up against the wall and on other kind of boring things like that. So it's actually really boring, the play, I thought. And so when many died, of these things that they did to be kind of controversial and modern were just so predictable. So you have to do gender bending now. So let's, I didn't like Lady Capulet switched with Lord Capulet. I thought it completely undermined the idea of what a father is, what a husband is, and, you know, how Juliet has to move from one to the other. The ire of her father completely dissipated and so then also all of the funny bawdy jokes between peter and the nurse again another important foil of a relationship completely ruined because peter's a woman now because that's really edgy and i just didn't buy it i thought that it was a sort of tawdry and and a little bit dull Mm. i have to say we got, I got to the end of the play and I was like, oh, it's too bad they died. <laughs> you know, where you get to the end of the Zeffirelli play or in, um, for me, the Boz Lerman play and my heart's just ripped out because I think because both of those productions really, especially Zeffirelli, really protect the innocence of Juliet and the idealism of Romeo. Those were just eviscerated from this production. You know, it just, so it just didn't hurt. And you know, I guess that's a, say, say. Well, Hmm. the one, the one thing that was done that is unforgivable is that this director altered Shakespeare's text. So not cut it, Mm -hmm. but actually changed the words. Mm -hmm. So in order to be feminist, the friar's lines are changed. So instead of saying this at the moment when he gives Juliet the potion, he should say, and this shall free thee from thy present shame if no inconstant toy nor womanish fear abate thy valor in the acting it. And they changed womanish fear to childish fear. Because oh, of course, did they really? Yeah, because radical feminism, no women are afraid ever. Yeah. So it became a childish fear. And right. you just think, who do you think you are that you can mm. change the text like that? Why? It's just, it, it, it just showed there was no respect for this work of art that Shakespeare made for us. Yeah. That's, I was in a production one time and I kind of got um, the bit between my teeth and I added an O 
in the middle of my speech because I was just so worked up. And my Sparky, who you guys know, Sparky Roberts came up to me immediately afterwards. And I was all proud of myself because I thought I nailed this thing. And she said, we do not add works words to Shakespeare. And I said, what do you mean? She said, that little O is not in the text. And I was like, okay, I learned my lesson. I'll never do that again. <laughs> you know, like she reveres the text. And that's like part of the reason why she was like such a great director is because she so revered the text. Anyway, you guys, let's find another production that we can really sing its praises for next time. You know, let's let's do that. Um, let me look forward a little bit. Our next podcast is going to be um, Hamlet, like maybe the granddaddy of them all. So we're doing two right next to each other. Heidi and myself are going to do um, Hamlet with Andrew Kern. Those should be beginning to drop within a couple of weeks. And we really hope that you join us for those. Those are, I mean, we all of these are fun. If you guys but... want to see some people or hear some people geeking out on Shakespeare, yeah. Wag- yeah. we are nothing. Like we have, we are nothing compared to Andrew and Tim on Hamlet. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna nerd. It's yes. gonna be. It's. It might be painful for for all of the listeners. It might be really painful. Like I'm gonna be the moderate voice of reason on this podcast, and that's <laughs> right, saying right. a lot. Yeah. So. Yeah. So that's what's coming up. Um, you can always find us if you have more comments, especially about the production, the PBS production starring Josh O'Connor and Jesse Buckley. We'd love to hear your thoughts on that on the Close Reads podcast Facebook page. And that's an easy way to get a hold of Heidi and myself. And if you want to get a hold of Sarah Jane, even though she's not on Facebook, we can still make sure that your your questions, comments uh, get to her. Heidi, Sarah Jane, any closing thoughts about this wonderful play? I'm just so grateful to have an opportunity to talk to the two of you about it. Thank you. I've really learned a lot. It's so... Yeah, me I'm, too. I'm really, I'm really grateful for this conversation. It's just as, I mean, I hope our listeners um, gain, you know, gain something, hopefully some love for the play and maybe even a deeper understanding of it. But man, I, I too as well enjoy the benefits of that from the two of you. So thank you for including me in the conversation. Thank you, Heidi. Yes, thank you. And also thank you to the listeners for the really perceptive and searching questions that Wonderful. gave us even more to think about today I really enjoy yeah. answering the questions too so yes this has been a delightful journey through the play again listeners thank you so much for joining us and stay tuned for more episodes forthcoming on behalf of Heidi White and Sarah Jane Bentley I am Tim McIntosh and thank you for joining us for The Play's The Thing
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.